blame Ian. Ian Buck's probably the reason you're listening to this podcast. 15 years ago, as a Stanford PhD, Ian looked at the GPU and saw serious computing potential. To unlock the power, he created the Brook programming language, which would later become CUDA. The rest is history. GPUs and their massive parallel computing resources have become key to advances in high-performance computing and, more recently, the deep learning breakthroughs that kicked off today's AI boom. Today, Ian is General Manager and Vice President of NVIDIA's Accelerated Computing Group that delivers its Tesla GPUs, CUDA software, and related products to some of the world's largest data centers. Welcome to the 100th episode of the NVIDIA AI Podcast. I'm Rick Merritt, NVIDIA's newest staff writer, and we're speaking to Ian in advance of his keynote at our GTC event in Washington, D.C., Tuesday, November 5th at 10 a.m. If you haven't signed up yet, sign up at nvidia.com slash gtc dash dc and use the promotional code gmpod for a 20% discount. Ian, welcome to the AI podcast. Hi, Rick. Happy to be here. I wanted to start off by getting your 30,000 foot take on kind of where we're at with AI today. It was about three years ago, I had a, what I thought was a really great interview with a, a deep learning researcher at one of the top 10 cloud computing companies. And at that time, this was 2016, he was telling me he can't run his most interesting models because they would take a month to complete and he didn't have the performance or the memory for them. Not today, let's fast forward. What are people telling you as you go around and talk to the most aggressive AI users today? You know, what's interesting is that problem of the need for compute, the need to wait to get my result from my training job, to understand if it was getting, if it's converging, if it's, if it's getting to the results and answers that I need, the accuracy I need. Despite all the advances in AI technology, in GPUs, in the software stacks and the networks, that problem continues. And it continues because AI needs, it, it fundamentally is software writing software. It's going to take data, uh, whether that be images, uh, recordings of voice like this podcast or text, or even more esoteric data like uh, network traffic or packet information, and turns it into software that can detect anomalies or pull things out. It does that through massive amounts of computation to train those neural networks. And as the world's researchers figure out new ways of applying AI and making them more capable to do more things smarter, they, they make bigger and more powerful neural networks. And the problems they're trying to solve also grow in scope and scale. Um, you know, when we started on this path, it was the original ImageNet competition, recognizing breeds of cats and dogs. Um, you know, kind of the human, you know, mimicking maybe what the human visual system does uh, to be able to recognize this is a mug on a tabletop. You know, computer vision was a great starting point. Actually, conceptually, it's a simple a biological, almost hardwired function in our brains. I can see, see and recognize things. So can dogs and cats. Even bugs have a visual system that can recognize certain things and entities. As a result, those neural networks were very challenging at first, but now they're almost become somewhat trivial. The next challenge where AI has moved on to is uh, natural language understanding or conversational AI. Yeah. The ability to understand uh, the words that I'm saying right now, not only what the actual words are, but what they mean, and then be able to 
ask a question and answer a question and have it repeat back to me. That language level of understanding, that level of AI is a whole nother level of complexity of computational requirements to train, but also opens a huge new world of opportunity. And um, we're seeing this new wave of conversational AI drive a whole all new kinds of use cases, both from business as well as AI opportunities from a software harbor stack. And it's presenting some new, really cool challenges. So the main call is still give me more performance. Yeah, these networks are huge, massive. The latest work by Brian Cotton-Zaro's team built a uh, neural network called Megatron, which is originally based on the the first sort of breakthrough work by Google, uh, which was a network called BERT. These are literally hundreds of thousands of times larger in networks than what we originally were dealing with back in uh, for the ResNets and uh, uh, VGG networks and uh, that we had when we started doing computer vision. And the reason for that is not surprising. It needs to understand a lot more, not yeah. just where's the cat in this picture and what breed is it, but actually understanding language, which is a true intelligence kind of question. Bugs, dogs and cats don't have a language. Bugs don't have a language. Understanding a human language is uh, an incredibly complicated and challenging task. These networks take on a single server can take uh, you know weeks to even a month to train. So uh, today's training jobs for conversational AI are uh, naturally and have to be done at scale. Yeah. At NVIDIA, in fact, we have our own data centers that we use for our own research teams as well as for our own products. We are designing the software stack and the infrastructure to do these large training jobs at scale. You mentioned at scale. I want to talk about that. Where is AI in moving from a dozen or so data center giants that are all in to the retail shop at 7-Eleven that I go to? Where are we at in this proliferation of, of beyond the big data center? Well, certainly to do, um, to be a leader in AI, to apply it, um, you also need today need to be a leader in AI infrastructure. Uh, obviously, the hyperscalers uh, are experts in building very large infrastructure, and it's not surprising they were the first to be able to latch onto this for their own internal products. That hasn't changed the conversation for the on-prem world either, though. We are seeing the on-prem community now building and buying their own pod architectures built out of DGX GPUs to train these models, whether they be auto companies, which are trying to design and develop their own self-driving capabilities, uh, research groups in, in academia, or the... Even the clouds have started to provide more pod-like GPU architectures, interconnect, interconnected servers to do training at scale. Uh, Amazon's P3DN instance, for example, is designed to have a 100 gigabit interconnect, specifically designed to do training jobs at scale. Uh, and we've been working with them to optimize NLP-like models and other-like models for their customers and for the rest of the community to use. How do you bust through that sort of lower tier where you know, maybe they don't have a data science team uh, or maybe even training up on the cloud is it a kind of an expensive enterprise for them. So uh, yeah, this is a real level? challenge. So understand that AI in this world we're living in today is still being invented. Frankly, we're still, it's, 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 it's not a 100% mature technology. There's lots of new applications, new papers. The conferences, academic conferences for AI, you know, are, are waitlisted and, you know, you have to get on a lottery. So this is a field that's, that's, frankly, it's still early. But the opportunity's there. So how do you, if you're a Fortune 500 company, you don't have a, 
uh, AI developer team like uh, Google or Facebook, how do you get started? Um, one of the, the areas that we're discovering and learning and trying to help with is going a little bit more vertical in the AI solution stack. Just downloading a TensorFlow or PyTorch and starting from scratch is not going to teach you how to make a better washing machine or figure out, use AI to forecast which truck should go from which supply center to which retail store. That's a, a new field that's still being discovered, but we can help those communities get there sooner by providing more vertically integrated stacks, reference architectures that are designed to do these kinds of use cases. And then they can, their data scientists at these companies, maybe not AI specialists that can design a new neural network, but take an existing one and transfer it to their specific problem in a process called transfer learning. Uh, we've been doing this in the healthcare space. We have a stack called Clara, which is a which is designed to help radiologists and genomic and genomic researchers use AI to build AI-assisted radiology tools, so that radiologists can get an, have an AI look at at the scan alongside with them and help them identify areas of a CT scan or an MRI or an ultrasound that could be anomalous or an indication of a concern. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of medical data out there and a lot of different applications for this technology. So what we're, what Clara can do is give them an SDK for both ingest and training, and then they can take it the last mile to their specific use case or their specific instrument. That, that last mile jump allows NVIDIA can do 80% of the work to provide the base SDK, the base models that are already pre-trained, and they can do the last mile training to their particular use case. So they don't have to start over from downloading TensorFlow from scratch. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I guess what I wonder still, and maybe you can just go a little, one layer lower in the technology. I know you have a Clara stack for medical there's an Isaac stack for robotics. There's a Metropolis stack for smart cities and, and, and several of these. So if you took off the cover and you looked under the hood, what's, what's the different piece in these different stacks? Sure. It starts with, um, obviously, you have to, have to do you know, great AI, you need great hardware. And we just talked about that. Um, whether you, you buy DGX or build your own out of uh, some of the OEM systems out there or rent in the cloud, that's a decision people make amongst themselves. That's fine. We, we're, our, we're open company that way. We, we provide our, our platform and to however people want to consume it. On top of that, hardware is just the beginning. You have to also have the software stack that allows you to scale. And scaling to literally thousands of GPUs is what we do today for image and, and NLP models is hard. You have to optimize the numerics, the mathematics, the solvers to have basically thousands of brains learning at the same time, sharing each other's learnings and moving the ball forward to getting smarter as, as a whole. And that's a very complicated numerical, mathematical almost uh, black art. NVIDIA does a lot of that. So a lot of our, in our uh, CUDA software stack and our CUDNN libraries, our communication libraries that we have, that we integrate into the major frameworks like PyTorch and TensorFlow, yeah. we add all that, that sense in there so people don't need to worry about that. They still need to be cognizant, but the capabilities are all there. And we make that available. You go up another layer of stack is all of the domain-specific libraries that we do to accelerate the workflows. This can be in the form of signal processing, uh, whether it be uh, image ingest, JPEG decode, video decode, video encode, Mm. labeling, being able to have labeling libraries to extract or generate new samples from existing data. You'd be surprised, as we're making the, the core AI math faster, you have to make the whole software stack faster to feed the beast. Uh, and so a lot of the work that we actually do in the frameworks is around that. 
um, we made a library called Dolly, which allows for rapid uh, JPEG decode on the, directly on the GPU, as well as um, sample generation directly on the GPU. So we offload all this from the CPU. Up another layer, now you can run these frameworks at scale, but you need to do what I call transfer learning. You need to actually take it a pre-trained model and tweak it to your use case, mm. whether it be your instrument or your vehicle design, if in the case of self-driving. Uh, so we've actually built a transfer learning toolkit that helps users take a pre-trained model and do transfer learning, apply a little bit more data to the problem and make that model specific to your particular use case and your particular uh, application without having to train from scratch or design a whole new model from scratch that gets the accuracy you desire. So transfer learning is another big uh, technology we've added to our stack, along with many others. Like I said, our goal is to provide an open platform. Yeah. We, we provide access to our hardware platforms through all the different channels, through all the different partners, as well as directly from us if, if you so choose. And uh, then enable our software stack with it. If you want to program all the way down to the CUDA level, fine, or the Tensor PyTorch level, fine, or the Horval level, fine, or you go up the stack to you know work with some of our vertical solutions because you may not have the expertise to just start from scratch. AI is definitely hard. And I think the world is realizing how hard AI is yeah. to do. And it's hard because of the software. The work and design that goes into training at scale, all the optimizations, all of the neural network design, it requires uh, immense levels of expertise, understanding, and complexity. It's becoming a supercomputing on the training side. Yeah. There's a there's a corollary to that which is on inference as well, which is also kind of fun uh, to talk about. Well, one thing I wanted to ask you is there's this explosion going on of software AI companies. And I can imagine, well, just pretend I'm an end user, I'm sort of your customer's customer, and I've got to start making this happen in my shop. And how do I pick a software AI platform? There's so many companies. In fact, even our own, well, I understand our inception program that tries to enable them and, and, and work with them. Uh, we're working with more than 5,000 companies. So how does this, if I'm the MIS or the IT guy trying to pick a software platform, what, what kind of advice do you give them in, in this sort of heady days? Uh, it is challenging. I think it's important to identify who you're choosing. You're choosing a partner. Because often in the case, like I said, AI is new. And that means your partner is going to, there's no off the shelf caught solution to, to your particular problem. Yeah. So you need to find a, a, a partner. And, and the startup community recognizes this, that is willing to work with you to take whatever technology they have and adopt it to, to your problem. And you, f you feel comfortable and have a, a, a synergistic relationship to evolve. They need to understand your data understand your problem, hopefully have seen it once before, and also have some of the AI expertise that can know how to change a neural network, adopt it, modify some layers, or apply the technology. They better be familiar with GPUs. Um, if, you, if they can't answer the GPU 101 kinds of questions, you might be in trouble, but I'm, I'm sure most do. Okay, here's a personal question. Um, you're a developer at heart. I mean, you developed the Brook language. Today, in this AI software explosion that's going on, if you could just unleash your inner geek and go back and just become a software developer again, what would you want, most want to work on? I think the area that I am perhaps going to have the biggest impact in AI will be healthcare. I feel that the healthcare industry is chock full of, of data, of information. We have electronic medical records dating back to the 80s. We have 
New York Times obituaries dating back to the 1800s. Wow. Think about it. Yeah. People are starting to look at obituaries and figure out genetic components to disease by interpreting how people, what people wrote back then about problems. That field and, and healthcare in general is, is rife for innovation. There are many obstacles and many challenges to getting there, but um, from, a, from a lifelong pursuit, I am truly hopeful that AI can improve the quality of life, can cure disease, and frankly, save lives. And, and it may already be starting to do that today, which makes me excited about the kind of work we're doing, even though I'm, I may not be doing it myself. Yeah, but it would be a great place if you had another career to do. I get you. Okay, a hard work question. I'd just like to get your thoughts about what do you think the future of the accelerator and the network chip looks like? There will, we will continue and there will always be faster new accelerators and newer, faster networking technologies to connect all those accelerators to power AI. The great part about where we are in this moment of time is that with the rapid innovation that's happening, with the new neural networks, with all the things that we're learning about AI and what it needs from a hardware perspective, from an interconnect perspective, it's driving an immense amount of innovation and, and new product and improvements. And the engineers who get to work on it are chock full of ideas by studying neural networks like BERT and Megatron and many of the others that are, that are being, invent, and being invented or even talked about in conferences. I think also, however, that it's going to take another step up because really what is becoming important. Yeah, it's not just about the accelerator and the interconnect. It's starting to become about the IO system, how we manage and flow our data, how we build and design data centers, um, the kind of uh, what is the right looking data center, right from a, not just a accelerator or server or interconnect, but storage plane to, to rack design, to pod, to the discussion between air to water, cooling to power delivery, it's, it's uh, giving a whole new wave of rethinking how people build data centers today. And that's very exciting because, you know, we've, we've taken the constraints off. You know, we really can look at the whole computing hardware platform, not just from an accelerator standpoint or NIC, but, you know, what is the data center I need to build to develop world-class AI for my business? And, um, you know, you're starting to see that discussion happening. You're starting to see people break the norms and going into to higher and tighter densities for, for more powerful interconnects with new interconnect technologies like uh, Sharp and doing some collection operations in network. I mean, the whole data center is being redesigned for AI, which is very exciting. There's an interesting sort of serendipity there, isn't there, in that uh, uh, AI is essentially a, a data kind of processing, so it needs the network. And as you were mentioning earlier, networking uh, could be an application area for AI in terms of parsing packets. Very much so. And that, that comes in two ways, both in training and inference. In the training side, remember, we have thousands of smaller brains trying to work together and share data information. Some of that can actually be done in the network instead of having to literally ship it all the way, you know, broadcast across all the nodes. We could be doing some of those reductions, some of that 
that um, aggregation in the network and save bandwidth and improve mm. our computation. So I think some of the computation is going to start spreading out that way. From an inference standpoint, there's a really interesting conversation happening of where inference should happen from the data center to the edge and being more tightly integrated into the point of entry right at the network in the entry network point, then necessarily taking the inference operation all the way back to the data center. Uh, and with the advent of these new models and conversational AI, you, know, you just have to run it on a GPU. You can't afford to run a model like Bird or Megatron on a CPU. It'd be like me trying to have a conversation with you and you taking four seconds to answer a question. <laughs> it just doesn't work. So no one would use their phone or talk to their the hockey puck on their, their kitchen counter and that kind of stuff. Um, if so, so that is making people rethink how they want to build their edge devices. Yeah, and it's a rich day in hardware startups too. So I've even heard of hardware startups talking about trying to do some kind of AI work at the sensor level. Crazy. You know, AI is going to be pervasive. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's not too much hyperbole to say that. There's going to be AI all the way down to the the doorbell, to the thermostat, to my shoelaces one day. I, I you know, and Nvidia's mission is really to help enable that future. I want to ask you a different question. You're going to keynote uh, Nvidia's GTC in Washington D.C. in November, and I'm wondering. I mean, your work on Brook got started. I, I believe was it a DARPA grant? Yeah, actually, it was through both uh, DARPA and DOE funded my research at uh, at Stanford. Yeah. Looking at it started at distributed graphics and uh, distributed computing for for graphics, and we quickly realized that these things actually could be used for more than just drawing triangles. But actually, they're coming complex enough to actually do some real compute. And uh, uh, the work uh, which was funded through through DARPA was exact some of the early work on parallel computing with GPUs. Your research, your initial research in Brook uh, was funded by a DARPA grant. So uh, given how pervasive we know AI is going to be someday, is, is the federal government investing at the right level in basic research for AI? We're definitely, the government got the message. Uh, I think uh, a few years ago, there was still some skepticism about it, but today um, that is definitely not the case. If you look at the executive orders that have been issued around AI, um, the DOE off opening a new a department of AI uh, to advance the application of AI and the budget that's being applied and actually targeted at AI applications in science, in open science, in applications is very real. And now is the time to execute on that. So we we have the mandate and we have the budget. We have to help the, the different agencies and different parts of the federal government all the way down to the state and local level to help, help them take advantage of this disruptive technology to figure out applications in, in areas of predictive maintenance, uh, traffic congestions, God knows power grid management, and <laughs> as also disaster relief to, to be able to predict, you know, given the the weather conditions today and the potential for disaster, where should I put my emergency resources ahead of time so that I have the right resources in the right place in the right time, which obviously is critical in the time of uh, natural disaster. Yeah. So on the flip side of that question, is industry doing enough? I've, I've heard some voices in government saying, you know, there's real risks in AI. How do we know these results are right? How do we know somebody didn't mess with the data sets? Uh, there's, there's reliability questions. And they're kind of putting it on industry and saying, you guys need to do more. Is industry doing its part? Those are really valid questions. 
And I applaud that, you know, we're not trying to lock down and regulate AI before we fully understand it and really creating a public-private partnership to, to figure it out as we go. I don't think, uh, you know, AI is uh, obviously a new technology, a new science, and needs to be understood. But also the opportunity for it is very real, so we need to start applying it and learning as we go. Uh, we are seeing the issue of understanding why an AI made a particular decision is an important question. Uh, and there's actually really good work on that. The understanding of bias in data, where was the data injected into the training process that created that bias that made it make the wrong turn? choice or turn or decision uh, is something that's, that's studied. In fact, uh, traceability, which is the recording and logging of training uh, as you go and being able to backtrace from when you made the wrong decision, when did the neural network learn something that was inappropriate or wrong and going back and figuring out what was wrong with that and identifying the data that did that. That's obviously critical work that is actually happening now and being documented, being shared. And at some point we're going to get to where everyone's comfortable and understands the best practices in this area. Yeah. Okay. One more hardware question. Um, NVIDIA has been expanding from selling GPUs to selling GPU cards to selling GPU systems, whole big servers. And now just down the street from where we're sitting, we've got a, a, a supercomputer center, Saturn V, I guess is the name yeah. of it. Why did we do that? Um, well, you know, to be a leader in AI, you also have to be a leader in AI infrastructure. You can't design a new neural network like BERT or Megatron without having the computational resources to empower the developers to do their best work. It, it, it just doesn't happen. So you have to give them access to the computational complexity, computational capability to, to develop because AI is naturally going to take data and learn from it in a supercomputer. That's how it learns. We've had to build our own. We use it a lot for our own research groups, uh, for our own AI. We have over 200 plus researchers doing AI research, and we've generated over 170 AI papers as a result of that. Um, Saturn V, which you mentioned, was the name of our, our, our supercomputer. It has over 1.7 exaflops of AI horsepower that enables all that. We also use it for our drive platform, which is NVIDIA's self-driving um, AI platform to develop the neural networks for path planning, lane detection, all the, the dozens of, of neural networks that operate in a self-driving car that we have running around in the streets today here in the Bay Area. And thirdly, we use it for our own reasons. We've actually done AI work in understanding manufacturing and silicon op operations to optimize our own businesses. So um, it's taught us a lot about where AI is going, not just using it ourselves, but improving our own products. And then our business model is to share all that. We open up our designs and make our technology available however people want to consume it, either buying individual GPUs, buying systems for us, or we enable our ODM OEM partners to build their own for their, their customers. And we work with the cloud partners so they people can consume it in the cloud, whether it be Amazon, Microsoft, or, or Google. Ian, thanks so much for uh, taking the time out to be on this AI podcast. If you want to hear more from Ian, he'll be keynoting NVIDIA GTC event in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, November 5th at 10 a.m. And keep listening to the AI podcast. Thank you. <laughs>